So I get it under contract. Uh, we buy it March of 20. April of 20, no rent shows up. May of 20 rolls around. I walk over and ask my property manager, where is our rent? And I uh, don't know. Haven't heard from him. We've been calling. We can't get a hold of anybody. June of 20 rolls around. No rent. So I'm calling the manager and I'm talking to him and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get a huge bonus this year. And I'm like, oh really? Why? It, well, we were doing two and a half times the sales this year that we were doing last year. And I'm like, lovely. And so we start the eviction and uh, finally somebody shows up, a human being about six months later, and we're pretty far into the eviction at this point. A human being shows up and just says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm evicting you. And they said, why? And I said, because you're not paying rent. <laughs> and they're like, it's COVID. And I'm like, your store is doing two and a half times the volume <laughs> this year that it did last year. So I said, look, I would be happy to have a conversation, but frankly, I'm, I'm annoyed that it's taken this long for you to get on the phone with me. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Chris, I like your name. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're listening to this, you can read his bio in the notes, but we have a lot of we have a lot to cover today. So we're not going to start with how you got into the real estate business. We know you're in it. We'll start with Salt Lake City, someplace I've heard a lot about, never been here. It's an amazing place, good place to invest, market. Can you just describe a little bit about Salt Lake City? In my opinion, it's a very easy city to sell. It's an easy state to sell. Okay. I'm a sixth generation Utah. We've been there for a, the long haul. Okay. It's kind of interesting. Denver likes to sell the idea that it's a city that's in the mountains and it is adjacent to the mountains, no doubt. Salt Lake is quite literally in the mountains, right? When you fly into Salt Lake, you can be skiing, you can be standing at the airport and then you can have skis on your feet and be going down the hill within 45 minutes, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Kind of an unrivaled, you know, situation throughout the Western US from a snow quality and what it offers there. So it's an interesting town from that perspective. Lots of outdoor focus, great, great things going there. It's a family-centric environment. The entire community is basically centered around families. I have five children. My wife and I have five kids that we're raising in Salt Lake City. That's not abnormal. <laughs> so that's, that's more normal than it's not, which is interesting. And it's just great. We love it. You get four seasons. So, you know, you do get all distinct four seasons. There's great snow. Every one of my kids is skiing, which is awesome. We do lots of outdoor activities. Is that why the tech industry, what do they call Salt Lake City for the tech industry now? Silicon Slopes. Okay. So yeah. is that why they're headed there because of everything you just said, or is there tax advantages or a better business climate or? Yeah, I think so. I think if you're the second or third rung down developer and you're in San Jose and you're struggling to pay for your two bedroom apartment, that's $4,000 a month or whatever it might be there. And you're 
frustrated with your quality of life because you might have to be driving 50 minutes each way on your commute or whatever that might be. I think Salt Lake has become a really easy destination to have the back offices for a lot of these software companies. And what it offers their employees is an opportunity to have more affordable housing. They can buy more house. They can rent more house. They can have more access to outdoors, other activities. And it's just a more, it's an easier and, and cheaper climate to live in. Has has Salt Lake been growing for a while or is this more recent that it seems to be maybe for a Texan, I hear about it a lot more. Has this been going on for 20, 30 years or is this maybe in the last decade? It's a good question. The tech scene has definitely been more in the last decade. Okay. It's, it's more, it's explosive over the last decade is what I would probably call it. Up to this point, Salt Lake has been growing and we've definitely been on the radar. And for what you do for a living, we've definitely, we've been on the radar for a long time. Promontory Point is where the two, you know, transcontinental railroad companies came together in Northern Utah. So you have three different things. You have the Long Beach port, the Oakland port, and the Seattle port. The rail line coming out of all three of those converges and comes together in Salt Lake, Okay, which makes that huge. We also have the intersection of I-15 and I-70 for all of the traffic through the kind of south central United States. And then we've got the intersection of I-15 and I-80. So from a truck route standpoint and from a rail standpoint, it's a really critical point from a distribution standpoint. Okay. All right. We're going to, we're going to take a, a break from real estate for a second. We were just talking and you told me a story. One, you said in Salt Lake, having five kids is normal. Five kids is a lot. I've got three and that's a lot. But then you told me a story and you said, in our family, we don't half-ass anything. And this is a great story. So what did, tell the story that you just told me and how you grew your family from four to five kids. Yeah, you bet. So we had a girl first, then a boy, then two girls. When we were pregnant with the fourth, my wife gave me my wish. I had each time I wanted to wait until the child was born to find out what, what the baby was going to be. You're crazy. I know. She, <laughs> she told me that each time. So she finally on the fourth said, look, we've got two girls and a boy. You can have your wish. We'll wait. And we really thought that our daughter was going to be a son. That's how we felt. Okay. So we were just fully convinced that just the whole time through the pregnancy, we felt that way, everything. Well, she was about seven or eight months pregnant. And it was one of those kind of quiet moments at night when you got the lamp turned off and you're kind of laying there in bed, gathering your thoughts, thinking about what happened for the day, what you have, you know, for the next day. And my wife says, I think we need to have another baby. And I, and I heard her <laughs> and I heard her and I said, I know I'm so excited for this baby. <laughs> and she said, no, I think we need to have another baby. <laughs> And I said, nah, I'm, I'm just so excited for this baby. I can't wait. And she turned the lamp on and she sat up and said, you need to listen to me. We need to have another baby. <laughs> and I said, look, you're seven months pregnant. Like, let's just take it easy. Maybe some hormones, some pregnancy stuff going on. Let's just take her easy and let's figure out what, you know, take life as it comes here. So she stays on me for the next few months about it. And then we are actually in labor and delivery and we've successfully, you know, she's delivered our, our fourth our third daughter and it's, everything's gone great. Doctors left the room and it's just kind of her and I and the baby. And she looks at me and says, we need to have another baby. <laughs> and I said, oh, you got to just take it easy. You know, <laughs> let's just, let's breathe. Let's think through this. We just had this baby. So she keeps up on it after me for a few months on this. And finally she tells me, and this is really the end all, if you're a person of faith in, in your relationship with your significant other. She said, I feel like we need to have another baby. 
and you can't deny those feelings. Those are feelings from from a higher power. And yeah. I said, fine, I'll give I'll give you and God 24 hours to tell me that we need to have a baby. I will open my heart for 24 hours. And I don't know about you, but I don't really have dreams very frequently. And that night I went to bed and I dreamed that I was playing with a young Polynesian baby boy. Oh my gosh. And I woke up and not only did I have the dream, I can still envision the entire dream in my head right now as I'm just telling you this. And it was that real for me. So I woke up and I said, this is what I dreamed. And she said, okay, I have no idea how we're going to accomplish that, but let's go to work. So the, there's a pretty hefty Polynesian community in the state of Utah, and there's a lot of cross synergy between the Mormon church and Polynesia. And so there are a lot of people there and we reached out to more or less everybody we knew to say, you know, does anybody know of kind of maybe a troubled situation or maybe a teenage pregnancy situation that was unfortunate? We, we'd be happy to help place a child into a home and it'd be a fifth child and nice home and, and opportunity for a child to be raised. And so we reached out and we spent a lot of time doing that. We couldn't find a path. And so we finally found a, another mom who had adopted a baby from Tonga. And she lived in San Francisco. She's an adoption attorney. She had adopted two babies from a birth mom. And within a month or two, that same birth mom became pregnant again. And so she called us over Facebook video, which is a thing you can do. And so we got a call from Facebook video and it's this, you know, lady from Tonga. She lives on this island of 300 people called Nomuka. And she said, I'd like to come to America and I'd like to give you my baby. And so we were on the high of highs, right? We had a birth mom, we were excited. It was a great thing, but as any adopted, you know, anybody who's gone through the adoption process whatsoever can tell you there are a lot of highs and lows through this time period. And there are moments where you think everything's going to be fine. And if you add international adoption in it, you know, the variables go way up as did ours. And so the laws in Tonga required that we had to live in Tonga for a year if we were going to adopt a baby from Tonga. And so what we attempted to do is to have her come, you know, she had decided that she was going to come to the U.S. on a visa. And so two times during this pregnancy, she went over to Fiji, which is the closest consulate office to try to get a passport to come to the U.S., a visa to come to the U.S. And she got denied the first time. And we were pretty disappointed at the time President Trump had tightened down the border at that exact moment. And so it was just kind of a tougher time that we're not granting very many visas at the moment. And then she went back and attempted it a second time in November. And it was actually over Thanksgiving weekend. And she attempted it a second time, got denied a second time. So to give some perspective, for the birth mom to get to Fiji, she had there's a boat that comes by Nomuka twice per week. So she had to get on the ferry and then get to Tonga Topu, which is the main island in Tonga. And then she had to get on a flight that went from there to Fiji, which was only every few days. So, I mean, each time we're going back and forth, you could talk about as much as seven days or 10 days to travel one way. So she did, she got denied the second time and we, I'll, I'll never forget this. We were down in Southern Utah. We were having a Thanksgiving celebration with my wife's family and she got denied the second time and my wife she went home to her home island and kind of given up on the adoption process. At this point, we don't really know when the baby was supposed to be born, but we just knew it was sometime soon. And why didn't you know? There's no, there's not really hospitals, right, on the islands. I mean, even in, in American Samoa and 
Fiji and some of the more advanced places, they have clinics, but there's no ultrasound machines. Okay. So no clue. You're, I guess you're measuring with a tape measure and yeah, okay. guessing. So it was an interesting time period. So my wife actually was so depressed. She gave herself the flu and was sick. I took her to a client event in Southern California the week after Thanksgiving to try to cheer her up a little bit. And back to your comment that I, that I made as we walked in here, we were sitting there and we just decided we don't halfway anything in our family ever. And so I'll never forget, you know, this other moment during this process, I was sitting there at the Koi Pond by the Nordstrom in Fashion Island in the mall in Newport Beach. And I just sat there and I, you know, hotspotted my phone, got my laptop out and bought five international flights for five days away. Right. And so the idea was that my wife was going to take our younger two daughters and her parents, and they were all flying to Tonga. And then our birth mom was going to fly to American Samoa. So they were all going to kind of travel together as a party. And so, you know, by the time I stood up, my credit card was melted, almost clean off. And then what I did is booked another flight for myself and my older two kids for December 21st after they got out of school for the holiday break. And so it was, it was a rough time period there financially, but it was, but we basically decided we had to commit for it and we had to go for it. And I think maybe the most unnerving feeling besides the fact we had no idea if this was going to work is we had no idea when we were coming home. And so my wife, while I'm doing this and online, she is literally frantically running around the mall buying things because she thinks she's going to be living in American Samoa for somewhere between one and three months and has no idea. So it was kind of a wild time, but Long story short, if we fast forward, birth mom was able to travel to American Samoa and she went there and birthed the baby and we named our son Junior and wanted him to have a nice Polynesian name. There you go. The rest is history. That is an incredible story. And this is for anybody listening, this is who you're dealing with in the real estate world. They do not half ass it. That is a that's a really cool story. How long were y'all? How long did you end up being there? Was it one to three months, or was it relatively quickly? Yeah, it's a good question. We she arrived the first week in December on the island, and then we all left together the second week of January. So, my older kids and I got about a three week vacation in there, which was lovely. And yeah, then they got a little bit longer. Awesome, man. Yeah, thank you for sharing. No problem. All right, let's let's move back into real estate specifically. I just kind of want to start with I think what a lot of your persona on Twitter is and a lot of what you go by triple net income on Twitter. Yes. So let's just start with that kind of world. How did you get into it? And then we're just going to start breaking it down a little bit. Yeah. My grandfather is for sure my largest business mentor and he was an oil and gas landman. And so he bought mineral interest all over the place throughout the kind of Uinta Basin. So the Eastern side of Utah into the Colorado side up into Wyoming and then started working down on the New Mexico side of the Permian. And then it was about in the 70s, he diversified and started building single tenant Texacos on Build the Suits. And he built a handful of those. And then following those, he started building Arby's. And so as I grew into the business, my dad was a shopping center developer for Albertsons primarily and throughout the Intermountain area. And so I kind of grew up hearing about it around the dinner table. And I knew I wanted to be a real estate owner from a young age. And so a lot of my path was just trying to pick the best path to get there. Mm -hmm. So I started as a tenant rep broker in 2002, because at that time, that was the best mentor we could find for me to go work for in the marketplace. I was working for two 
agents in Salt Lake that were leaders of the industry. And I was handed off clients like Starbucks and Wells Fargo and Wendy's. And my job was to go find more locations for them. Okay. So essentially you're a site selection guy. Yeah, correct. Yeah. How would you define a great site selection person? Like what goes into that? To this day, I can tell you, I have sat at just about every single intersection in Salt Lake County for at least 20 minutes, sitting at the intersection, counting cars, trying to figure out which is the more AM traffic heavy side of the road. That's a Starbucks exercise, right? Trying to figure out which side of the road just gets more traffic in the morning. So you can do that in morning or at night, right? Uh Obviously, whatever you count at night is inverse. And so you just sit there. So hands-on, I think hands-on is the answer to that. So what do you look for for Arby's? How many lifted trucks drive by the side of the road? (laughs) It's definitely a correlation with beef and cheddars and truck nuts, right? Yeah, Yeah, Arby's a little harder. That's a harder customer to pin down. And it's shifted a lot for them over the last 20 years. I think it's probably easier if you you stick to a brand that's more just more something that's been focused over the last couple of decades. It's, It's much easier to find a Dutch Bros, for example, than it is to find an Arby's. We're talking about Dutch bros. We'll get there in a second. Do most people come to you and say, okay, we want to do 10 Dutch bros or 10 Wells Fargo's in Salt Lake City, go find us the sites? Or are you out looking for sites knowing, hey, this is something Wells Fargo might like, I'll call them? Yeah, I think you know, there's a perception with a lot of the younger people that are coming into the commercial real estate and or just newer people into the industry that they <laughs> often think that at some point, this big switch flips and then everybody just calls you and says, hey, can you go handle this for me? At the end of the day, it's it's just like the site selection thing. You have to be relevant. You have to be present. It's hands-on. And I find if you're in the path of growth and if you're tying up dirt and you're starting to work on conceptual site plans and then you're putting it in front of customers, there's more of the back and forth where the customer might say, hey, this doesn't work for me here, but I'd like to go down to this intersection. But it's it's not so much that you're sitting back in a chair just waiting for the inbound call. You have to be out in front of it. How do you determine, like, from your perspective, what would be a tenant that you want to work with? What do they need to, what are the characteristics of a tenant that you like working with? Excellent question. You, I, For me, you have to find back end. So you have to be able to sell the asset on the back end or put a long-term loan in place. Okay. That is a favorable financing. Okay. So, and I think maybe what I mean by that is I, we've been tempted and we've looked at over the years at a number of like daycare deals on build the suits and they're interesting. They're much harder to finance on the back end. Okay. When COVID hit, I mean, that asset class became toxic basically overnight, right? Yep. It's much easier to finance something like a household name that's a fast food drive through restaurant or an auto parts store or something along those lines. And then like a Starbucks is easy as it's like Amazon basically. It's that's like correct. A- it's almost like the government. It's as good as a government bond or something. I, I think once a tenant has a hundred units, so on these larger franchise deals, if they have a hundred restaurants under their belt, or they're pu- public and corporate, you know, a corporate tenant with a publicly traded ticker, it's the same thing. They're the same size at that point. Once they get to a hundred stores, they have a CFO, they have a, you know CEO, they have an asset management team. They look and behave exactly like a company does. It's much larger. And do most companies that get to 100 units, did they usually do that on their corporate balance sheet to get there? Or are there certain developers that'll take a risk on them at 20, 30, 40 units and help them grow to 100? It Typically, that you, you do see developers building for them well in advance of them being at 100 units. Okay. 
And, you know, the private equity side of things has really changed the game over the last, this last cycle, let's call it since 2010 to now. Okay. And the private equity companies now are getting involved with brands at 20 to 30 units. And, and so once the private equity company has bought them, it's not like their balance sheet becomes much better, right? I mean, they still are dealing with 20 or 30 units, right? And, you know, truth of the matter is you look at a lot of these hundred store operators right now, and some of their balance sheets are a little rough looking at the exact moment right now. Yeah. So it's just expensive to build stores. It's expensive to grow. It's expensive to gain new customers. And so a lot of these PE companies have started stepping in much earlier. Once a good PE company's behind something, we'll take a hard look at it. Okay. All right. Well, let's just talk about that for a second. So you kind of describe like what a great tenant would would look like, but I'm sure everybody would like to develop for Dutch Bros or Starbucks or Wells Fargo. How do you actually get into bed with these folks? How do you how do you meet them? Yeah. You just find the site. You find a site they need. Okay. And that is really it's just a 101 thing. You got to think through who their customer is and who their best stores are. And then it's finding the right site in the right spot. And most brands once they get to you know, call it several hundred stores or larger, are usually pretty apprehensive about a rookie developer building for them. They get a little nervous about that. So some of them will ground lease and and that's an easy way for you to get your foot in the door. If they won't ground lease and they insist on you building a building for them, then typically, you know, if you have the right site, they'll work with you no matter what happens and no matter what the deal structure is. Okay. So what do you mean that they'll ground lease? That means that you might find the site, but they don't trust you to build it. So they'll just ground lease it, build it on their own. Yeah. Don't trust, or the market cycle is just more advantageous for them to build their building. So like right now, for example, we're just, we just completed a quick quack, just opened on a pad that we delivered the pad for them. And then they built their own building. They ground lease from us. Jack in the box is going to open within a few months on the adjacent pad. And they chose to build their own building as well. Okay, I'm, but I'm Chris. I just showed up to ICSC. I'm fresh out of college, or maybe not even fresh out of college, but I'm just looking to get an in at Starbucks or at Dutch Bros. Like, how do you build relationships with these people? Is it just cold calling them? Hey, I have a great site. They end up liking it and they're kind of forced to know you, or are there better ways that you've built relationships with these people? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's just a human that is making the, the decision there okay. at Dutch Bros. Not so- a bot. It's not a bot and it's and it's not somebody in a boardroom. I mean, let's take Dutch Bros. That's a great one, for example. It's a human that is a pretty easy human to talk to. The culture at Dutch Bros is that it filters all the way from the broistas out in the parking lot taking your order all the way up to the corporate level. They're the same type of personality all the way through. So they're pretty easy people and approachable to talk to. Yeah. And, you know, they each have a booth. Each of these retailers has a booth. And so you can go meet with them and you can talk to them. We had, let's see, we had four rookies at this year's ICSC event. And two of our rookies met the chief development officer for Planet Fitness. And they met because they won a contest that Planet Fitness was doing where they were sponsoring something and giving away some Planet Fitness swag. And, (laughs) you know, they freaked out and got excited because they won something. And next thing you know, chief development officers out introducing themselves, saying hello. That's awesome. And again, it's just building a relationship, but clearly you have to have the chop. So it's one thing if I bring them, if I bring Dutch Bros one site, but how do you go from being, I brought you one site to I'm your preferred person? And like, what do you have to have done to kind of get there? 
Yeah, I don't have that status with Dutch Bros. I tweet about Dutch a lot and we have a number of deals going with them, but I'm not their preferred developer in any of their markets. I would like that. So if you figure that out, let me know. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I've just continued to put the right sites in front of them that yeah. I think they would say yes to. And I think if you stay on it with any of these retailers, the, it's, the process for them has become much more difficult over the last year and a half. As soon as interest rates started moving, the the cap rates, the back-end exit values moved for these tenants as well. And what that meant is that any developer that was not well-heeled and that was not ready for a little bit of a blip to go through the marketplace instantly had more trouble financing the deal, putting the deal together, building the deal, selling the deal, everything. And the translation there on the ground is that if you are a real estate manager and your area to expand in was Salt Lake City and you had 12 stores earmarked to open in 2023, as we were going into the fall of 2022, you at least had three or four developers call you and say, I'm not starting this project. Right. So now you have to go back and report to your boss and say, hey, instead of 12 openings, I'm going to have eight or I'm going to have nine. And so you could imagine what the ripple effect is as you go through the whole country. And yeah. so one of the things I think anybody can present to any retailer today is just a clear path that they're actually going to get the job done. Yep. If you take like Dutch Bros, but some of these stores that are maybe like have a more specialty build out. Dutch Bros is like a time. I go to Dutch Bros all the time, by the way. Yeah. You What's your drink? I get a nitro cold brew. Okay. I'm like not one. I don't get yeah. the like dressed up milkshake type stuff. <laughs> but when I always go to them, I'm like, man, you look at what they sell for online. It's like this little 800 square foot or thousand square foot box, huge piece of land because they've got double drive throughs and everything. <laughs> but then you might go to a, we're going to talk about the conversion to Olive Garden in a little bit, but then you go to some buildings that are like four or 5,000 feet, maybe a lot more multi-dimensional, more tenants might fit in there if Olive Garden goes bust, which they never will because they offer great breadsticks at a fair, fair value. <laughs> How should one look at buying a Dutch Bros versus a company with a building that is maybe you could see more potential tenants occupying that building? Yeah, the most versatile building in the drive-through world right now is probably a three thousand foot drive-through. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that is if you rewound the clock maybe ten years, the most versatile building would be a thirty-five hundred foot building. Okay, and if you go another ten years back, it would have been a four thousand foot building. Okay, kitchen sizes have become much more efficient. Okay, and there's also just far less food being actually cooked on site, and so much of the food that's prepared through our drive-throughs these days is going through a commissary. Okay. And it arrives at the restaurant. And so it's really kind of a version of a lot of warming and then some cooking. So what's interesting about that is the size just continues to shrink. It's not going up. In fact, a lot of the new fast food that's going in right now is shrunk down to 2,200 feet, which is a totally small size for what it used to be. Customers aren't sitting in the dining room as much as they used to. So drive-through percentage of sales is much higher than it was. And it's that this trend continues to move upward. So it's hard to weigh in specifically unless you're looking at just a building size and looking at other tenants that might go in there. But it, at the moment, 3,000 feet is a versatile size. The other th reason I like 3,000 foot buildings is because they fit on three quarters of an acre to an acre sites. That site size hasn't changed. So over 20 years, that site size has been the same thing. Johnny, do you go sit in these yeah, places? I feel like I grew up, my grandparents would like take me to McDonald's, yeah. throw me in the jungle gym yeah. with the nasty balls that had just been caked by <laughs> thousands of kids, yeah. probably puking on them. 
And I would just lived in those balls. Gross. That's kind of over, isn't it? Yeah. Like nobody's building jungle gyms inside their units anymore. Yeah, that's correct. It's very infrequent that you see that. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is you, the ones, the concepts that you're seeing more diners sit in are more of like a Chick-fil-A or a Culver's. And it's almost like more of an experiential fast food environment. But just the normal kind of middle of the fairway, fast food retailers like a Burger King, Wendy's, McDonald's, just less customers are sitting in the lobbies. Yeah. I want to just take a, a step back for a second. So we talked about site selection. So traffic probably matters. You just said something interesting about if you're doing a 3000 foot building, you like it because it works on three quarters or of an acre, an acre. Is there anything else like site related that matters? Obviously zoning, you got to have it zoned, but typically frontage on a major retail, it's probably already zoned what you want. Yeah, every drive-through user is worried about one thing when they look at a site. Okay. How do my customers get into the drive-through? Okay. That is the number one thing every single one of them, every flag, every brand, they're all thinking the same thing. How do my customers get into this drive-through? Ingress is the most important feature of any site. Okay, so can you go a little deeper on that? Is there is there something that you could pick up just by looking at a vacant land site to think they're they're going to hate this. There's no way the the people can get in or sure. or is it always, "Hey, we can figure out a way to get them in?" A common thing that you see all the time on a larger highway site or some kind of state road scenario is you see a, a raised median. So what that means is you only have a right in, right out. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden that site is dinged versus if it had a full access, if you could make a left in. So that's a big, that's a big change for retailers. That's one thing to look at right away. And then another question is most of the astute retailers will then ask the question of, are there plans to add raised, raised medians in the future? So some of that is being spent up front with the DOT that you're working in and just sitting down with them and saying, what are your future plans for this intersection and the city? Sitting at a corner is always an advantage to sitting mid-block. And if you are mid-block or if you're two or three or four pads off the corner, can I get access to the corner? Cross access is always a better thing than no cross access. So what's cross access when you're, when as a developer, when I'm able to get a legal right to cross the other property. So I have access to additional ingress egress points. So you might be building a Burger King and I can cross Panda Express, Krispy Kremes and Arby's to get to my Burger King. Yeah. Cause God knows that's like everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is how much time in our lives. And I tweeted about this yesterday, but everybody thinks development is putting buildings up super fast and it's so fun and you know, it's amazing. <laughs> And the sad reality is it's reading, you know, hundred page document after hundred page document. Yeah. And cross access easements are a great example of that. When you show up and you see a pad, if the seller of the land doesn't already have a cross access in place, and let's just say it was a CVS on the corner, and then there was a Panda Express to use your example, and then a multi-tenant building, but there was no cross access to your fourth pad. Getting that cross access might be the hardest part of the entire development process. And real quick, go back. What is a raised median again? Raised median is when there's just an actual curb sitting in the middle of the road where you cannot cross oh, it. Oh, I gotcha. I, I forget. We're in Texas. So like your trucks, you guys just drive over everything. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, I was going right? to say, like, those are think, like ramps. Yeah, right. we, we just play off the those. The jump. Yeah. <laughs> no. So it's that's intimidating for cars and, and some trucks. And depending on what it is, sometimes they'll actually do a six inch like actual gutter, right? And a curb into and have a gutter there into a median. Yeah, it's either like a lifted truck or you might see a cowboy just on his horse, just flying down the center median. Love that. Like you'll see often Walgreens might be across the street from CVS or 
is there any time like if Chick-fil-A is going somewhere in their lease, are they usually putting, hey, we don't want a chicken store anywhere else in this development? Or like what type of competition hurdles do some of these tenants put up, if any? Yeah, I think this is the number one sale point for by why you would do industrial is because you don't have to deal with any of this. Yeah. Exclusive use provisions are probably one of the more challenging parts of sh- a shopping center development. And I just define shopping center as not necessarily like a traditional anchor without parcels out in front of it. Think of a shopping center as anything more than one pad. So we have two pads or more. And so that could be a, a grocery anchor shopping center. It could be just a three or four pad development. It is so brutal because a lot of these tenants will restrict five different uses. For example, McDonald's restricts smoothies. And I, you know, I know that McDonald's does sell smoothies, but at the same time, are they really a competitor to Tropical Smoothie? Mm. Are you going to choose to go to Tropical Smoothie or McDonald's if you're going to get a smoothie? And I, I just don't think that's the case. I think yeah. you know, it's, it's a different customer pattern. So you have to be really careful when you're doing multiple pads in a shopping center or multiple properties in any shopping center environment to make sure that you're defining your exclusive use so that your tenant can run a very successful business plan, but at the same time so that you can work through the remainder of your acreage. All right. You've done a lot of these deals. I know every company probably has their own little provisions in the lease, but there's probably things you did in the first couple of deals that you don't do now. Like, Is there anything that comes to mind when I say, like, here are some best practices for how to structure these leases? so that they are maybe not more favorable, but at least protect the landlord maybe more than like a novice might do on their first deal. Yeah. Strip mall guy tweets all the time about how (laughs) he hates options. And I 100% completely concur with his opinion. Options are literally one of the most painful parts of the business. I think. What's also interesting is I'm mostly building single tenant. And so often my primary term is 10 years or 15 or 20 years. And then the tenants will ask for two to four, sometimes six, five-year option periods. And a five-year option period is really just worthless. I mean, my debt has usually rolled. So typically you're going to finance your property and it's going to roll. Your debt is going to roll when the primary lease term is up. And so then as you roll into five-year option periods, you have nothing. You can't really have, there's not much to refinance. There's not much from a collateral standpoint from the bank's perspective. And so you definitely get dinged as far as loan proceeds go when you roll through those five-year option periods. We have done a number of renewals recently where it's you know a 20-year term, and then we'll provide two 10-year option periods because that gets you a little bit more time. So that's been one of the clauses we like to use. We spend a lot of time and energy making sure that it's a absolute net lease. So this is an interesting thing because there's so many different definitions of what that means on retail. When I say absolute net, I'm trying to pass through every single cost to the tenant and have no management obligation whatsoever if it's single tenant. If it's multi-tenant, I want to have a full recapture of all of my management to actually run a shopping center. I'm not trying to turn my management into a profit center. I'm just trying to make sure I can cover cost and and run it efficiently. All right. We'll just spend a little time on this. We've been talking a lot about the development side. You also own a brokerage company where you are also helping developers that do this kind of stuff. But when we were talking, you said, one of the the reasons why y'all are really good at that, and you said, if I have leasing guys going into a meeting with a developer, you show up to the meeting with a developer hat on. Take take the ball and run with what you meant there. Yeah, you bet. It's a regular thing for us to go together and, and for me to show up with leasing. 
And the perspective that I'm offering in any meeting there or any meeting that we have internally at the office that our client isn't necessarily privileged to on every one of those because we don't bog them down with all of that detail is I'm constantly providing a developer's perspective. And so it's as though one of their development team members is sitting in our office all the time to some level. And what I mean by that is our leasing team might be working through and they might have you know, a vacant pad and they've got the opportunity to develop a two tenant building on there or a single tenant. And one of the things, for example, that I could point out to them right now, if that was in the state of Utah, is we're waiting about 55 to 60 weeks for lead time for electrical gear on multi-tenant buildings versus a single tenant building switch gear is about 60 days. So just knowing that in my head is a huge savings of time and energy going into the, the brokers because as they're communicating back to their developers, the developers might be aware of that and they may not. And not to say that I know more than our clients, our clients are way more informed and, and have lots of knowledge to share with me. It's just another set of eyes Yeah, is really what it is. And is, is there anything different? Like if you show up as uh, representing the tenant versus representing the landlord? The tenant side is a little bit unique because a lot of it is just helping the tenants understand the landscape that the developers are trying to work through. Right. We are often working with various developers on our tenant rep assignments. And so we have lots of developers over there. Some of them are seasoned folks. Some of them are haven't delivered as many buildings. And so it's just kind of working through the process and then making sure that we're tracking with the developer timely and following up to make sure that whatever our tenants expectations of timeline is, is hopefully hitting what is reality. This was a huge thing that got asked on Twitter, but I think it's just a common discussion, especially for single tenant stuff. Why would I buy a single tenant triple net deal when I could just buy a treasury right now? I can't tell you how frequently somebody asked me that on Twitter. And it's kind of amazing to me because I don't know how many times I've sat with a buyer or investor into a single tenant deal, but it's several hundred for sure. And never once in all of those transactions have I ever had a single buyer or investor into single tenant ever once asked me the question of why would I go into a financial product over this? What's interesting is they don't even have the conversation of should I go invest in the stock market or in bonds? It's just, I would like to buy another building, right? That's typically what the the entire dialogue is all about. Yep. I have made this money over here doing whatever, or sold a building, or sold a piece of land, or sold my business, and I would like to have cash flow, and I'd like to buy a single tenant building. That's no maintenance, no management. So it's basically just a longer time horizon. Much longer time horizon. Not uncommon for us to sell you know, an asset to a family that might have 21 other single tenant properties that they own, yep. and this is the 22nd. So most of our time is spent when we get a client like that is just trying to figure out what else they own, especially if it's a newer client for us, and what their portfolio looks like. And similar to the way a financial manager might balance your financial portfolio, if they've got five burger tenants, let's say they own 20 buildings, and they have five burger tenants and 10 auto parts stores and five gas stations, we're probably going to recommend we diversify away from that and start buying a coffee or some other product type that's not recommended there. Okay, you just answered my question. So. If you're owning 20 or 25 of these, you're tending to care what industry your tenants are in. There's nobody that's like, I don't care if they're all Burger King. It's all just a, a check. It's, historically, we get calls from customers all the time, and, and maybe their dad or their grandpa was the Kmart developer. Okay. So they have 30 Kmart still in the portfolio that have now become other things. 
or maybe they were a some grocery store chain and and they bought a portfolio of 12 Safeways through the Midwest or wherever it might be. It's it's a common theme to have somebody really clustered in one tenant. Yep. As there as when we're doing the advising side of that to try to give them recommendations as to how to they, they really haven't diversified their risk position. If Safeway, if you had a dozen Safeways in your portfolio and Safeway went bankrupt, that would be a huge problem for you. Yep. So we're looking at tenant and type of use, both. Do you only, do you, like when you develop, are you always developing to then kind of recap and hold? Are you developing to flip? Like how do you, for somebody that's in it, what do you want to hold on to? How do you decide what goes in your portfolio? We decide at the moment that we're capitalizing the deal. Okay. When we decide how we're going to fund the deal and what debt we're going to put on there, that's the moment we decide what is our end goal. And I think that decision is balanced in a whole bunch of different ways. One is just looking at the horizon of the asset and when is value going to be maximized. Yep. If I finish building, you know, a build the suit Wendy's, for example. It's highly likely, maybe not in the exact moment today, because nothing's really selling at the exact moment today, but when there's favorable cap rate market and somebody's going to offer me a cap rate at the back end, that's the highest value I'm likely to get for 20 years out of the asset. To me, it doesn't make much sense to hold it. Definitely. If I have partners, there's really no reason to hold it whatsoever. And on that topic, like has the 1031 money kind of run dry by this point? I mean, I knew like when, when rates started going up. Y'all's asset class still was the asset class that was kind of moving because smaller buyers, lots of 1031s. Has that slowed down? Is the market pretty quiet right now? We sold a Cafe Rio in August of last year. Cafe Rio is a hundred store kind of sweet Tex-Mex chain based out of Salt Lake mm. City. So we sold a Cafe Rio in August of last year for a four and a quarter cap. And the same month we closed a Dutch Bros in Denver at a 395 cap. And then the money shut off. It was gone in September. And it was gone September last year. Not just for us. I just felt like in September, the money was just gone over. There was no 1031 money, which was about six months from the time they started raising rates. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. We're going to get into some fun stories, but before we do that, going back to the, you're a site selection person. We've talked a lot about triple net income. I want to talk a little bit. You're doing multifamily development. Yes. Why did you choose to get into multi and what's going on in that, in the Utah market there and the markets that you're in? Yeah. Utah has a similar phenomenon going on with California people relocating to our state that you have and others. And so, you know, we have had a lot of that immigration. We also have a lot of natural growth back to the five kids in my household and that being normal. So we're just growing and our pace of growth is higher than it's been for a long time. And our housing is growing quite expensive. We have a housing problem similar to many other cities. The one thing that is unique, though, is that we have far less multifamily doors that have been constructed in Utah per capita than some of our surrounding states. And so there really is a great business case right now to go build multifamily housing. And our focus typically is walk-up product, kind of residential suburb type product. And, and then we're also building some podium product and we're building townhomes for rent. And so there's a good business plan for that. We have moved a little bit more into that because, again, I'm a site selection person. And so we wanted to diversify more into the residential space. We determined that we would not be great to run that ourselves and continue to try to run drive through stuff ourselves and, and be good at all things. We got a little concerned we were going to be spread too thin. Mm -hmm. 
So we partnered with a best-in-class operator in the Utah market, a local homegrown product. And so we've partnered with their development team and we're working on a number of projects. During the kind of 2017 to 2021 period, it was really tight and it was very difficult to find good multifamily sites. Yeah. But because we're site selection people, we were we had access to a lot of sites. And so we didn't really have a, you know, a tough time finding A plus sites. So we try to focus on just the absolute A plus gems that we really, really love. Okay. So like what checks your box for a great site in in these markets? We are moving forward on a project that's located in Riverdale City, which is kind of a bedroom community. It's located about 40 minutes north of Salt Lake City. Um, That's an interesting opportunity because there just has been hardly any product that's been constructed over the last 20 years in the entire submarket. Wow. So we're almost one of the only offerings. We're under construction on a project in Chubbuck, Idaho. Chubbuck is a sister city to Pocatello, Idaho, so southeastern Idaho. And in that submarket, there is not been a project over there hasn't been a project over 100 doors delivered until a recent project was just completed that was a 300 door project and it has leased up phenomenally and we are under construction on a 200 door project and that's important because the amenity deck that they were able to offer and that we are able to offer is much better it's far superior to the existing legacy product that's in market and so in that environment, we feel like what we're delivering is an opportunity for, it's just a better mousetrap. You're leasing space at the end of the day, and you've got a better looking offering for the customer. All right. Let's spend some time on, on well, we can call it story time, but just some interesting things we've talked about. One of the things we talked about that I thought was interesting, and you said is something that you've had experience with, is what we would call like a family breakup. Describe the situation that's occurring and maybe what y'all do to help families dispose of assets? Again, this is a common thread. Lots of people on ReachWit talk about this, how they never want to pass any assets off to their children and how that just causes problems. And it's an interesting thing. Originally, when my dad suggested I should go into brokerage, one of the things he recommended to me is you're going to see the way lots of people do things, and then you're going to decide what works best for you. And I think this is a great, you know, this part of the of the advising that we do as brokers is really brings those words to life for me because you watch the way some families deal with assets and it's just interesting so we're we're working on one right now for a family group that we've worked with for a long time and it's just interesting sometimes people just want to you know they don't want real estate owned by them or with their partners who are their siblings and they don't want to be frustrated to you know, why am I not getting a return? Please pass the potatoes, right? And it's just, it's tough. It's a challenge. And so it's its difficult to kind of work through that because you have personal relationships that are pretty intense. And on top of that, you're just trying to do what's best for the real estate and what's best for the partners involved. And sometimes it's also hard picking out who's in charge. Right. What is often the best? Is it to just do nothing, go slowly? Is there like a one strategy fits all or each situation is different? I think with any time you're looking at disposing of any portfolio of properties, you're always better to hit the brakes, move slowly, think methodically, and work through those in a timely period. I think that you often see, and I, I don't, you know, most of the stuff we're working through has tenants in place. It has, you know, on any of the family breakups we've ever worked through, they always have tenants in place. Typically it's not vacant buildings. You're selling occupied buildings. 
So you have something that's got great value and, and whether you sell it today at X cap or whether you sell it tomorrow at X plus two or minus two or whatever it might be, it doesn't make a ton of difference in the big picture of things if you're looking at the grand scheme. I do think that most of my clients that seem like they're a little bit better suited to hand assets off are usually owning single tenant portfolios at the end of their careers. And they typically have single tenant portfolios by the number of how many kids they have. You know, for example, if with if I was planning on handing assets to my kids, five buildings or 10 buildings or 15 buildings makes more sense than 12 or seven or three. So trying to make sure you have a clear plan and a very clearly identified plan that everybody understands. What ends up happening though, almost every single time is the matriarch or patriarch or both will pass away. And then whatever was stated is literally just thrown in the, in the garbage can and it's start over and it's any person's guess as to what is going to happen next. And how can they, because it wasn't legally documented, what was stated? Yeah. Yeah. So you just watch, it's, you know, it's just interesting. You watch these folks build a portfolio of assets and they do it over decades of time and just spend so many hours. It's their entire persona, you know, for a lot of these folks, it's, it's who they are. Right. I mean, imagine who Chris Powers would be without class B and class C shallow bay industrial. Right. So it's tough. And then, you know, they're gone and then their heirs don't seem to care very much at all about what that was for them or anything else. And I I don't know if it's a care thing so much as other things motivated as well, but one way or another, you know, there's not really a whole lot of time spent of, Hey, we should keep this or sentimental value. Yeah. Uh, So a good example of that is I've been working on this in and out deal for this whole calendar year. And Hopefully we can get our city that we're working with to approve our site plan and we can have a ratified lease by the end of the year. And I've tweeted about this. I don't, I literally will never sell that in and out. As long as that in and out is owned and operating. I mean, it's a trophy tenant to own. It's a trophy for me. I love in and out. I'm like a super fan. And so I don't, I don't have any intention of selling it. However, I could see, I wouldn't even be cold in the ground and my kids would sell it in five seconds. They don't care. (laughs) Just money. Right. Daddy used to take us, we'd sit in the drive through and listen to music while they made their fresh potato pot or fries. Yeah. The Arby's, the Arby's that I've tweeted about a number of times, my grandfather built in 1976 in Salt Lake City. It's corporate store 174 and it operated from the fall of 77 until December of 2022. And that is a site where we are into the city right now for permit for a 237 podium apartment building. Oh, really? And my intent there is that I'm locking up that property for another 30 or 40 years. In fact, we've chosen a HUD loan process almost specifically just for that because nobody will be able to dispose of that asset. It'll just be locked for 30 or 40 more years. And it's the first asset our grandfather built and it's in our family and there's just no reason to exit it. Let's just cash flow and let's all move on with our lives. Did you, did Arby's just not want to renew? Oh, they wanted to renew. Yeah. But you wanted to build. Yeah. They wanted to renew. Chick-fil-A wanted the site. A couple others wanted the site, but we really felt like it was time for a, a new, higher and better use. We, we'd looked hard at the fast food deals. It just wasn't, the metrics weren't there. And on fast food, it just seems like we're eating more and like, this is an expanding industry. In a lot of worlds, you hear like the internet's making other th- everything else kind of shrink, but it seems like the food industry is like hotter than ever. Yeah. Is it just because Americans are just now eating more fast food or like what is pushing all of this? Yeah, I think it's easiest to ask the rhetorical question and ask yourself in the last seven days, have you eaten anything that was prepared by someone else? 
And then you start thinking about how many times in the last seven days, how many times per day, how many days did you eat something that was prepared by somebody else? And it's surprising to most people because it's higher than what they think. Yeah. The other part of that's really interesting is if you go on any of the meal delivery services, Grubhub, Uber Eats, you know, pick any of them, Seamless, and you go on there and look at the names of the restaurants that are populated in the list that are recommended for you. And what's interesting is there will be at least five or seven and you will read the name and you'll think to yourself, wait a minute, I've never seen a physical storefront for that tenant. Who is that? What's interesting is a lot of those times those are being prepared out of one of these fast food restaurants in the kitchen of the fast food restaurant, or right. they're being prepared out of some kind of food commissary that's in one of your buildings. Right. Or it's just really the food world has become very fascinating over the last few years. Yeah. I don't, if I'm ordering a Chipotle, I don't care that it came out of the Chipotle store. I just care that by the time it gets to my doorstep, it's a Chipotle. <laughs> right. So I guess that's the rise of cloud kitchens and ghost kitchens and yep. things of that nature. Yep. All right. There was a tweet. It said, uh, no other broker in history will have added more value to a single tenant pad if this goes through. And I think this was talking about a red lobster that turned into an olive garden. Yeah, that's a little bit of self-promotion. John Andrini sold me the deal. So he was self-promoting his own deal. Which okay. Is, that's, as, as he should. Yeah, that's fine. Should. What's the story there? Yeah, he sold me a red lobster and I closed in March of 2020. I'm not sure if you remember what March of 2020 I was remember. Like. Yeah. It's, when you buy a national tenant like that, it's not uncommon for the rent check to take one or two or sometimes three months to get to the right place. They pay you, but it's just, it's a large corporation. It takes a while. You have to provide verification. Hey, we really own the property. And a lot of the tenants also pay via electronic funds transfer. And so usually the accounting departments get a little bit particular about having that paperwork in by a certain day, the month before. So it just takes a while, long story short. And so he sells me this red lobster. I I call him on a Saturday morning when he had it listed. He listed it. I got a Crexy listing alert Saturday morning. Call him within 10 minutes. And I said, do not call a single other person back. I promise you I will close this deal. <laughs> and he said, no problem. He had me under contract by the end of the day Sunday. Okay. So he had a lot of buyers on it. And um, hang on real quick. Why were you so confident that this was the, this was like a deal that was, you're not going to let go. It's an acre and a half out parcel and Red Lobster was on a ground lease paying, I think, $46,000 a year. Okay. I've written a blog on this. Okay. So the exact numbers in there. I think they were paying 46,000 a year. It was an acre and a half. I knew the absolute worst case scenario is they go bankrupt and I get the pad back and I can rent it for much more money. Okay. So I'm hoping that the worst case scenario happens. Okay. So I tell him I'm going to buy it. I, we also had some 1031 money that was active on during my 45-day identification period at this time, and it's just about the right amount of money to buy this building. So it was timely. Okay. So I get it under contract. We buy it March of 20. April of 20, no rent shows up. Well, we weren't even in the office at the moment. We took about three weeks there where people kind of didn't come to the office, and then everybody just came right back. So yeah. by the time May of 20 rolls around... I walk over and ask my property manager, where is our rent? Don't know. Haven't heard from him. We've been calling. We can't get a hold of anybody. June of 20 rolls around, no rent. And so it just, it became clear there was like nobody at home at Red Lobster, which was interesting. It should be, it's really important to point out at this point, Red Lobster was never required by either Bannock County, City of Pocatello, State of Idaho to close ever. And they didn't close. They stayed open. 
So I'm calling the manager and I'm talking to him and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get a huge bonus this year. And I'm like, oh really? Why? Well, we were doing two and a half times the sales this year that we were doing last year. And I'm like, lovely, wonderful. <laughs> so meanwhile, my loan payment is going through each month and I, you know, I'm now having to like move funds from one account to another to cover loan payments with that partnership. Fortunately, they had another property, so I didn't have to call capital for that. But, you know, I, I wasn't expecting Red Lobster to not pay rent. And so we start the eviction and finally somebody shows up, a human being about six months later, and we're pretty far into the eviction at this point. A human being shows up and just says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm evicting you. And they said, why? And I said, because you're not paying rent. And they're like, it's COVID. And I'm like, your store is doing two and a half times the volume <laughs> this year that it did last year. I'm sorry that you operate in multiple states, but this is an, I, I own this location, not all your locations. So I said, look, I would be happy to have a conversation, but frankly, I'm, I'm annoyed that it's taken this long for you to get on the phone with me. And so we go back and forth and we just continue the eviction process and we ended up evicting the tenant. Wow. They tried to settle with me the day of the hearing, the final hearing. It took a while to get the hearing scheduled because with COVID, everything was backlogged, the courts, oh, yeah. all of it. So they try to settle with me the day of, and I decide, no, let's go to court and let's see what this Idaho judge says. And I mean, it was over in about five and a half minutes, right? It was just boom, boom. You're paying legal fees. You pay all the rent. Bye. You're out of here. And just like that. So what was really fascinating is I handed it off to my leasing guys and within 30 days, we have a deal going with Olive Garden and it's a ground lease. And so it was a fun deal because Olive Garden just opened. So the city of Pocatello and Chubbuck got an Olive Garden, which is wonderful. And it is wonderful. It is great. People love it. I mean, you know, in Pocatello and Chubbuck, they're thrilled that they got an Olive Garden and I'm thrilled that I was able to be a part of it. Yeah. So, and I think what John was alluding to is he's got some additional activity possibly happening in some of the periphery properties. I don't know if he's ready to announce yet, but there's some cool. big, big forthcoming items. So, and again, okay. So that happens. And just to kind of wrap that story up, you, they get evicted and you put a sign up and you start getting calls on the property. How did you determine, was it, was there anybody else besides Olive Garden or they were the first ones that came up? Like, how did you know it was going to be Olive Garden? Yeah. Our leasing team knew that we were going through the eviction process. They knew that we were likely to win. So they were already starting to field inquiries on the property yep. and they had three or four prospects, but Olive Garden was the best credit. And so, and on that entity with those partners, we, they really wanted credit. Everybody was geared on credit and we had been through a rocky road, right? I mean, I bought the property and we never once collected rent on it until we yep. won the lawsuit. So we were basically having to fund low pay loan payments for a couple of years. I mean, it was a while. Wow. So it was tough. So they really wanted a stable tenant. Yep. And so we put in Olive Garden. We like, it was almost a two and a half times the rent, which was lovely on a ground lease. We had to put a couple hundred grand into the deal for them, but it was a nice ground lease for that. And then we just locked permanent financing on it and pulled a little bit of money out and went and bought another piece of land to go build something on. That's so. awesome. I was going to ask you that question. When an olive, when a red lobster is going to an olive garden, are y'all doing all the construction work or does olive garden usually do it? Again, some of that depends on the timing of the market and what's happening right now. We're seeing a lot more tenants prefer to ground lease corporate tenants. Okay. Part of the reason is they have more cash on their balance sheets. And so there's no reason for me to go borrow, especially now when my lending rate is way too high. Right? Yeah. So there's no point in me borrowing right now. There is cheaper to use their money. Okay. All right. Let's just talk modular for a little bit. 
I think when people hear modular, they think, oh, I'm going to, this is way better. I'm going to save a lot of money. It's built in a factory. You did a modular Starbucks. I've actually moved a building before, which wasn't quite modular, but it's kind of under the same ethos of this is going to be a great deal. What do you think about modular? Yeah, we've just completed a second Starbucks and I've done one Dutch Bros modular. And the modular process is tough. I think it almost requires, it's almost like starting your development 101 education over all over again. Yep. Part of that is you're building shells so that whatever's vertical coming out of the ground is all approved typically at the state department of housing. So it's not approved by the city. It's approved by the state. Usually the state has a third party inspector. That's the way it is for Utah. So there's a third party inspector. And so the modular plans are drawn with your modular group that's manufacturing your modular unit. And then those plans go to the state and then you submit the state plans that are approved with your civil set and your elevations that go to the city or county or whatever municipal authority is governing your property. And what's really interesting is you spend like at least a month or two just convincing the planner that they don't touch the building. On all three buildings, we had planners, we had multiple people come back and redline the state approved drawings to which we had to remind them those are state approved drawings. It's not your department. So it's just, nobody really knows what the process is. That's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is that in addition to having a architect that's in-house with your manufacturer, you have your own architect that's on site, that's doing all the tie-ins and, and responsible for all that kind of work. Contractor-wise, your contractor, whomever you hire, has to basically prepare a site. And then once your building gets there, they then have to tie the site in. And so that means their contract is less than if they just built the building. So they're no matter what happens, they're frustrated uh, because they're earning less money. I definitely feel like they charge up for that. And so I think you get a lot of that is that they charge more for their services than they otherwise would, especially in a hot construction market, which we've been in for the last few years. So and then the building will show up on site and some random thing will be wrong with the building, right? Which, you know, we're just finishing another couple of touch-up items on the Starbucks drive through only that I just finished. It opened on Tuesday. You know, there's a couple of touch-up items that we need to have done. Well, really, they're within the scope of the manufacturer. Well, the manufacturer doesn't live in Utah. Their headquarters aren't in Utah. Their tradespeople aren't in Utah. So who fixes those things? Now, they were all things that should have been done on the building but who's responsible, right? Yep. And so it's just, it's really just a cluster. So on all three of ours, we didn't save time or money and they were harder to do. So I think we have retired from the modular business. Yeah, you 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 answered the question. I was gonna say, surely for all this, you're saving money. No, and it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I think if you had a consistent, exact, precise footprint, you were knocking out, you might be able to save a little bit of time in the long run. However, each state that you go to, you have to get up to speed with that new Department of Housing. And that takes time. So I know, for example, there was a huge backlog when Dutch was trying to enter Texas with modulars. And it took months and months and months to get through the system. All right. This one's for me. We're going to bring it home on this one. You have five children. Two, the last two years, you took a 30-day vacation with your family. Yes. And when I was texting you, I was like, how, how do you even plan one of these? One, let's just start. Why do you do 30-day vacations with a family of five? This is very cool that you do this. A couple of years ago, my wife was getting panicked because our oldest child was 12 
And she started doing the math and it was like, we have six years left and you know, our daughter has left the house forever. She's going to hate us. She's going to move on. She's going to have her own life. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let, let's, let's take a break. Yeah. Let's, let's cool it on that. And she said, we need to do something and we need to bring these kids together. And we, and then, you know, this is all kind of during that time period where COVID has hit. And so I think our entire way we were viewing travel and summers and time with our children changed during that time period as it did for a lot of people. Okay. So I, I think we just said, you know, look, at the end of the day, aren't we better off to spend a big chunk of time with the kids? And so we decided, let's go back east. And originally we started with, let's do a back east tour. So Eastern United States, Northeastern United States. And what we ended up doing is we did a week in that morphed. And then what we actually did was one week in Washington, DC. And then we rented an Airbnb in Brooklyn for 30 days. So we were actually gone for 37 days. And it was a wild experience to be gone for that long. We did a couple of weekend trips, one out to the Hamptons, another one down to Philadelphia. And it was so much fun to show our kids all these wonderful sites and the Liberty Bell. And we watched, you know, we started, we did the July 4th fireworks on the lawn at the mall, at the mall in DC, which was amazing. And their kids were able to walk through so many of those important structures that are important to America. And then we lived in New York, which is a completely different environment from Salt Lake City. My goodness, it is just as different as you could ever have, which is great. And what's the range of what's the range of ages again? So at the current moment, we're 14 to five. OK, so we're 12 to three when you're taking OK, when you're taking that age range, how do you break up your days? Is, does everybody go to everything or? That's a good question. They, it was full contact. So, <laughs> okay. So we were in a brownstone in Brooklyn and we, like a house. So we had like a townhome, right? And I would take my oldest on an early morning train and I drop her off at dance. Okay. And so she, we enrolled her in dance classes for most of the time period we were there. So she spent a lot of her time dancing, you know, in like various dance studios all around the theater district and just hanging out and learning from some of the best dance instructors she's ever had in her life. For my son, we found a college soccer player and he did soccer training for him, you know, three or four days a week at Brooklyn Bridge Park on the pier. And so we were literally out on the pier. The backdrop is downtown Manhattan. And I'm looking at the time at my 11 year old, 12 year old, and I'm like, I hope you can kind of appreciate this because this is literally the most epic thing. Yeah. So, and then our little girls, we enrolled in a gymnastics class. And so three, four days a week, they're over at gymnastics. And as normal, our little guy was just carted all around everywhere. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. So you literally almost just said like, we're, it's, it's a vacation, but we're also just kind of, kind of live there and do things that people would do if they're living there. That's right. In New York, we said, let's live there let's act as though we live here full time and let's just let's just see what it's like and when what would if i was if your kids were sitting in here right now what would they say the experience was like living in brooklyn each one of them would tell you probably first here's the best food we had they all love food right yeah. so they would probably all tell you that i think they'd probably all tell you about the different experience that they had and what it meant to them and it was so much fun and what was also a real benefit of having a daughter first and a very responsible daughter at that is that she is amazing. She would watch the kids, you know, a couple, every couple of nights, you know, my wife and I would leave and we'd go into the city and go have dinner at some yeah. amazing place and have a nice date night. 
So awesome. Okay. Well, then I have to ask about Europe. Did you, because yeah. in Europe, you didn't stay one place for 37 days. Yeah. And I just have so much respect. I mean, anybody listening to this, it's a parent of lots of kids going for 30 days with an age range like that. Okay. How did you break up that trip? Yeah. We did a week in England. We did a week and a half in Italy. And then we did two weeks in France. And there we traveled all around because we decided that we couldn't really stay put the whole time. Yeah. It the same thing. It also morphed. Originally when we started, we were trying to find an Airbnb to live in in Amsterdam for 30 days. And then we figured we would do, you know, weekend trips. And it morphed from there and it morphed to us moving around, which was a little different, but you know, it's just you got to stay flexible, I guess is the, probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Whatever version of constant in your life does not remain constant when you're moving around at all and then if you move around with that many people it does most definitely does not stay the same and do you have a travel agent or y'all just kind of doing this no no just us a highlight of that is we were driving to cinque terre to do the hike there on the western side of italy and we were leaving venice so we're in a rental van all right that i'm driving down the road and as i'm driving down the road i get an airbnb cancellation for the airbnb we were supposed to stay in that night and it was the most fascinating thing i mean it just like full triage mode. Like we're trying to figure out where are we going to sleep? What are we going to do? Where are we driving to? We don't no idea. And you just, you can't panic in those moments and you just got to stay calm and collect it and try to come up with the best solution you can come up with. And it's, it's not always perfect. And sometimes it's more entertaining. So what'd you do? We ended up at the second town. So on the North from the North, I can't remember the name of the town offhand, but we're in the second town. And it was so funny. We were sitting there eating dinner right underneath this Airbnb that we had just rented, right? Day of. And we're sitting there eating dinner and kind of towards the end of dinner, there's a DJ setting up in the little square there and we're right down by the water. So there's a square there, the water and a little harbor. And this guy's setting up and I'm like, whoa, that's kind of like a lot of equipment he's got over there. I mean, it's, yeah, he's got some serious speakers. And so by the end of dinner, he has got like a full techno, like, you know, (laughs) like, and it's so loud that across the dinner table, you can't hear each other talk. Yeah. You have to be almost screaming to hear each other talk. And and then I realize, and I look up and I realize our Airbnb is right there above our restaurant. <laughs> and so we go in, so we finish dinner, right? And we, you know, walk around the square for a minute and it's wild. You know, people are dancing and being crazy and whatever. And we go into the Airbnb and it's so loud in the Airbnb, you still can't hear each other talk. So anyways. That was entertaining. I don't know when he quit. One, two, three a.m. Something like that. Y'all don't have fast anything, Chris. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. The large companies have been doing this forever, and now it's finally making its way into small business, which is hiring a global workforce. But I think a lot of small businesses wake up and they think, you know, that's only something the large companies could do. It's got to be really complicated. I don't even know where to start. I think that's one of the coolest things about Relay Human Cloud is how simple it is. Jason, how simple is it to actually work with Relay yeah. Human? We had the same questions when we started. How would you even do this? And most people stop right there. Too complicated. How would we do it? We don't know. So what Relay Human Cloud has done is they've made that super simple. You have the ability to log into a system that seems very familiar. It's not like logging into some website in India that you're worried about, right? They've made it very simple where you can log in, you can see all the candidates, see what fits what you're working for. You have somebody that you're going to talk to that's going to uh, help guide you. We had a gentleman that we were able to say, this is what we need. This is what we're looking for. 
And then once we got set up, onboarding people, the talent is already identified. Once we've identified what we need, onboarding them becomes a matter of days. Very, very simple because these are talented people already in an office ready to go. And so them being added to your team can happen almost instantly. And from our experience, we've been able to, when we identify a new need or that we need to add on to our team, we find that the person once onboarded onto our team, within days, they are up and running and taking over responsibilities or adding to the existing team that exists. And that is because of the process that has been put in place, not only at Relay Human Cloud, but the process that once you're in the system doing it, it's very repetitive. And so we can bring people on just like it, it's actually easier than bringing someone on locally. Yep. Because they do a lot of the heavy lifting. We don't have to do it. It's yep. all done there. And so all we get to do is just start working. And so we have found it to be a tremendous value. And we're actually, we're always looking for how can we continue to extend our workforce there because of the efficiencies it brings and the fact that we're not responsible for a lot of the the heavy lifting on the operational management, onboarding, training, all that stuff happens uh, at Relay Human Cloud. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 